I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as revenge, Nazi punks, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Hello all, Jesse from Slice by Slice here again. We would once again like to thank you all for being patient as we recovered from being ill and the technical difficulties. I hope that you enjoyed part one of the Jeremy Sonier series, and I really hope that you enjoy part two that we have for you. We're just going to go jump straight into the conversation where we left off on the last episode last week. So without further ado, please enjoy Jeremy Sonier part two. And really just jump started his career so that he could make his next film in 2015 green room which he actually i think wrote before blue ruin yeah so it was kind of like uh kevin smith with dogma you know when that movie came out he's like this is one i actually had in my head or written down for a long time now what's interesting about this movie of course when you first brought up covering him i'm like you started rattling off movies and i haven't heard of this shit and get to green room like oh yeah i saw that and what was crazy about seeing green room is this is when i get to say i actually went and saw in theaters right it was told to me that it was going to be a horror film it was kind of like a Get Out, you know, it was described as a horror film, but you really don't know what type of thing you're getting into. And on first watch, I left the theater like, yeah, there was some cool stuff in there. Like that's, that's it. And then going straight from Blue Ruin to Green Room back to back. Right. The whole, and then hearkening back to even Murder Party, the whole thing starts to come together. Like you can see everything he just learned all like swinging for the fences, crammed right. into one movie. Um, I'm actually surprised you didn't gravitate towards green room more. Cause when I first saw it, I immediately just thought of our like teenage and early 20 years growing up. That's as deep as I got into it. Like being in a punk band, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. skins and all that. But that was the thing I didn't, I was, I was more enamored with my association with it and at that level, but I didn't, I didn't see the big picture. So of course, written and directed by Jeremy Sonier. And uh, we've got Anton Yelchin, who played Pat, which, of course, we lost in 2016 in the freak, was it a Jeep accident? Yeah, it was Jeep Grand Cherokee, I And think. not like an off-roading accident. The damn thing rolled backwards and crushed his ass up against his own fence or something. Brick mailbox, something. Yeah, something. Um, you know the scary part? The recall notice was apparently found in his house, unopened by his mom. That's fucked up, man. Yeah. That could also be one of those fucking urban legends, but... Could be. What's not an urban legend is he was 27. So add one to the 27 club. That shit's weird to me. I know. But uh, of course, I always think of him as Odd Thomas from Odd Thomas. I haven't seen that yet. Oh, shit. Oh, we we covering that. Um, He was in the Fright Night remake, which yes. someone will be mentioned here in a second. And Oh, I didn't even think about that. And in uh, some Star Trek movies. Yeah, yeah, it's Chekhov. And which I haven't watched any of. <laughs> but we've got uh he sets russians back about 20 years in the movie but uh it's fine because it's star trek and it sucks but they're fun movies <laughs> we've got alia shawkat as sam of course i know her from final girls and arrested development okay we've got uh joe cole as reese and he was in peaky blinders which i barely know because of the wife uh, Callum Turner as Tiger. I didn't find anything else he's been in of note. And Mark Webber as Daniel, who was in fucking Scott Pilgrim. Right. So dipping into the, it's weird because he's not one of the musicians, but it's, you know <laughs> what I mean? It's just weird to me. Um, especially how music is a big part of the backstory of the idea of the characters and how it's all tied into this. 
Macon Blair, because it's one of Jeremy's movies, as Gabe. <laughs> uh, Imogen Poots as Amber, which she was in Frickin' Fright Night remake and is in the upcoming Black Christmas. And I don't care how much you and your wife cry about it, I'm going. <laughs> and I do have to say that now there's, I have two favorite names so far in the podcast. Dick Warlock and Imogen Poots, because I'd never <laughs> heard that fucking name before. Oh, she's great, man. She's been in a bunch of shit. And uh, last, certainly not least, Sir Patrick Stewart as Darcy. That's the most mind-blowing thing I know, about right? this movie. A few quick things before we get into this. Jeremy, and I'm going to keep saying his first name because I have trouble with his last name, he had said that one thing he never wanted to do again was another confined ensemble film after Murder Party because it was rough. And so we find him going back to that well in this. I'll just throw this out here. I'm, I forget to do shit in the meat of it. That's why I do the cast at the beginning and shit because I don't remember. So I'm just going to throw these out there. The, uh, the Ain't Rights band, the, the fictitious band in the movie, was a real band that only played a handful of shows and broke up right before they made the movie. Technically, yes. But every song the band played that was not a Dead Kennedys cover was actually different Virginia band songs that he had tapes of. And he sent it to all of them. And he's like, you have to learn all these songs. When I looked at the credits of it, the the handful of bands that did like two or three songs that I haven't, because the, there's some of them, the credits that, that ain't rights, but performed by blah, blah, blah. These handful of bands that I've never heard of were friends bands that he had yes. actually put those songs together. Yeah. So That's he, he said cool. he, he took a collection of like all of his friends band songs and he like sent a few songs to learn these. And Pretty much everybody in the movie, he says, is based off of somebody in some way yeah. that he knew in the DC punk scene. Yes. Which is scary. <laughs> I, I'm hoping it's exaggerated to some extent. <laughs> um, I do. I, just, I really want to say this about the band real quick. So Anton Yelton was mm-hmm. in a band. And I think even a punk band. Yeah. Okay. Played. And Allie was also in a real band, but they played different instruments. Yeah. And I saw them in different interviews talking about like having to learn how to play bass versus guitar versus what they normally played. What did you just let them play their normal fucking instruments? Cause you got to have a chick bass player. Is that a rule? That That's how it always is. So but I'm a bass player. So I'm not it, a chick. No, no, no. I'm saying if you, if you <laughs> stuck with that thing of make, Oh, you got to make the chick, the bass player. Like, you know, he wasn't going to, well, fuck, let's go into details about it. She wasn't going to be in the movie. It was right. written for a fucking male. It, it was a written male for a character. dude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail us, <laughs> but, uh, like you said, you had cast names that were real names of musicians that he knew from back in the day, and they really did learn the songs and even played a cast party. So he opened with a very minimalist, simple title card. That seems to be his thing. Yeah, that and the the downward shot of vehicle driving somewhere, which starts <laughs> to happen more in the later movies. But uh, we see a group of kids waking up in a van. I, I feel... <clears throat> I feel I'm old enough to call them kids at this point <laughs> uh, in a cornfield. And we learned that Tiger fell asleep while driving, ran him into the field <laughs> with the engine running all night. So now they're out of gas too. So Sam and Pat, who were quickly introduced to, not even really introduced to, you're just kind of there, um, head off via bike to the closest parking lot, which happens to be a skating rink to steal gas. So with the stolen gas, they're able to get back on the road. They drive for a while, and we're introduced to this guy, Tad, who seems to have a place for them to crash. At least it's what we think at first. He seems like a real big anti-flag fan. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Just insane is his homeboy. <laughs> so Tiger's looking around the place and says the dude's legit and puts on a record, and you hear the very beginning of Fear's legalized drugs. And you literally just hear, what to do for, what to do for, legalized. And then it's, k-ch, k-ch. That's probably the most you could play without paying for the song. That's fear. They wouldn't have even known it happened. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, that's to show us we fast forward in time. 
Tad comes back. Pat greets him at the door. You're the first to fall asleep. And he was because he's got shit drawn all over his face because we see him washing it off. And uh, Tad gathers the group around and we suddenly realize that he's interviewing them and that they're in this band called The Ain't Rights. So this is basically the punk house. Yeah. This movie is just like so close to home to me and to Josh because we're in bands together. But like being in like the indie punk scene growing up and playing in bands and sometimes we were the punk house or sometimes yeah. we had to get interviewed by the zine or sometimes we had to help the band that played with us find a punk house to stay at. And this shit is real. Like if you weren't in the punk scene, this is how it goes down. Exactly. And what what's really cool is because this is how it used to be because he right. talks about how y'all don't have a social media presence and like, oh, we don't want to do that, blah, blah, blah. And that's how it was. You would call the town. You would find the kid that ran the zine. He would book you a show and maybe let you sleep at his house, feed you some beer, and then move on to the next one. That's just, that's how it was. Wherever you slept, the person either had a magazine or a AM radio show. Yeah, something. And, uh, so in the interview, he ends up asking them, what's your desert Island band? And Pat has nothing. It's going to be a reoccurring thing. So, um, they're like, I think it's Sam brings up. It's like, Hey, when's this going to air? Do we need to plug the show? And that's when he's like, well, that kind of fell apart, but I got you another gig. And the backup gig is this shitty Mexican restaurant gig, which was actually something that really happened to Jeremy in a hardcore band that he was the singer in. But in the interviews, he refers to himself as the yeller, <laughs> not the screamer, the singer, <laughs> just the yeller. And uh, there's an interview I saw where uh, Anton goes on about it. You know, it's like, you know, I've been through this too. You know, it's like, and you play these shitty places where there's six people. We played shows right. where you played for the other fucking bands, and that was the only people there. <laughs> I was about to make a joke about, like, didn't we drive to play a show one time? Ended up playing it at, like, a coffee shop that wasn't the plan? I think it was first going to be the VFW, and then it ended up being Nature's Cup. That was the coffee shop. Right. But then later on, we actually got to go back and finally play the VFW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been through this shit. Well, not this shit. Thank God. <laughs> we didn't have to deal with the Nazis to this extreme. We experienced no. them. Yeah. But, and th those stories will probably pop up too. But <laughs> growing up in the punk scene, this is how it was. It yeah, really was. Totally. So they finish the gig, they get garbage pay, and Tad's like, look, I can get you a real gig, but you're going to have to go all the way to Portland nearly. And uh, they're like, you know, what's the pay? And he's like, it's 350 or some shit. And then they're like, okay, we'll do it. And he gives them a bit of a warning, though. Just so you know, it's mostly boots and braces down there. He also tells them to stick with his cousin Daniel and that uh, he won't be able to tag along because he's going to be vacuuming because Daniel and his girlfriend are going to be coming over later. Now, when he gives the whole thing about boots and braces, you know, you know are they left or, or hard right? Well, actually, ultra left. That's a hilarious joke. Right. But uh, getting into boots and braces, more specifically, boots and laces, didn't you? <laughs> this is when we worked together for a little while. You've got to tell your story about uh, the boots. So Josh still works for a company that does data network cabling and security cameras and shit. And I worked there with him. Oh, it seems like a lifetime ago. But a new guy got added onto the company and he was going to be in the van with me. And I don't remember which one of us was driving. And the guy was, honestly, he was nerdy enough to be Chris in Murder Party. If you think about it, <laughs> okay. right? Like he had that same personality, right? Oh, yeah. And I'm trying to break the ice with the guy because he won't talk. And I'm looking down and I see his choice in footwear. And I ask him, who the fuck did you kill? <laughs> and he's like, excuse me. I said, you got Doc Martens on with red shoelaces. Who the fuck did you kill? And he did not know what I was talking about. <laughs> And I had to explain it to him. 
And I gave him the nickname Adolf, yep. which was so unfitting of the guy. And unfortunately, everyone at the company called him that until he was called that in front of a customer. <laughs> and then it stopped. So the band gets to the venue and they meet with Daniel. And as soon as Tiger brings up Daniel's girlfriend, Daniel grabs him by the throat and tells him, shut the fuck up. So the band's quickly taken back to the green room. And uh, for anybody that doesn't know. The green room is the name of the backstage room that uh, the act, no matter if you're a band, comedian, magician, you hang out in the green room until it's your time to play. And I really thought I should specify that because I've had so many people ask me why the fuck's the movie called The Green Room. Yes. And it wasn't until they got back there when I'm sitting there watching the theater, I'm like, oh, green room. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so as they're getting ready to go on, um, Pat tells Sam. Hey, yo, I got a dumb idea. So once on, uh, <laughs> once on stage, Pat starts to get cold feet. <laughs> and uh, Oh, she rags him so get, hard. Given where they are, her response is hilarious. Back at now, I tell him you're Jewish. Given the fact that Anton Yelchin was born into a Jewish family makes it even funnier. Oh, I didn't even <laughs> think about that. <laughs> so we quickly find out what the idea is as they go straight into the Dead Kennedys, Nazi punks, fuck off. So as they play, we see Daniel hands something off to a girl. And the guy that seems to be like the stage manager or something is, is Gabe. He was the one who ushered him in, you know, like, don't leave your gear out here. It's a fire hazard. The owner's a real stickler about it. A.K.A. <laughs> <laughs> Macon Blair. Yes. Um, he sees this as well. So uh, after the set, they go back to the green room and see that all their gear is already in the hallway and they're told to load out. And uh, Sam's like, shit, I left my phone in there plugged in. And uh, I do want to say. That they play Nazi punks fuck off, and all the skins in that club get fucking pissed and start throwing shit at them. And they finish the song and they roll into the wrestler set and they're all into it. Yeah. Like, like it's like, okay, that's a good joke, you know? <laughs> but it is really like night and day how angry they are yeah. at, at Nazi punks fuck off versus the wrestler set. Yeah, because they really don't, they don't go back. They start throwing shit at the stage and stuff, but they don't go bonkers. It's almost like they give them a chance, right. so to speak. So Pat goes in there to get her phone only to find the note girl on the floor with a knife sticking out of her fucking head. Yes. Pat grabs the phone and manages to call 911 and get through and report a stabbing just as Gabe yanks the phone out of his hand. And they're all shoved in the room. And uh, Gabe comes in with them and we've got, what is it, Big Justin, the stagehand we find out later on. Anyways, they're all they're all in the room now. Right. And the dispatcher calls back. And... Uh, Gabe's like, yeah, I was, I was reporting a stabbing and goes walking out of the room on the phone with him. Like, okay, this is odd. And uh, Gabe comes back in the room a little bit later. I'm pretty sure it's Big Justin because um, he says Darcy's on his way and the cops are as well. And uh, he goes out to this trailer and asks this guy who we find out later is Clark for 600 bucks and a true believer or maybe two. And we then see Gabe with two guys and he pays one to stab the other just as the cops are rolling up. They're twins, by the way. Ah, yeah, yeah it's twin brothers stabbing each other. And so you're kind of, this all happens pretty fast. Cause it's like, oh, why, yeah. why is he actually talking? He's not freaked out about the girl in the floor. He's actually talking to nine one one. And then you see this and you're like, oh, these are the kind of people we're dealing with. Like <laughs> you already know it, you put two and two together. You already know someone is fucked. Like we're going to have a body count. Has the, the headlining band who was responsible for the stabbing left the room yet with the ain't rights? Cowcatcher? No. Yeah. They have not left yet. Because I just love the like, righteous set, man. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I got that in here. 
So Darcy arrives as the cops are rolling up and they clear the other band out of the room. And as they're leaving, the singer asks Pat for the, uh, the name of the second to last song in their set. It's fucking hard, man. That's the one I did her to. This is so dark. <laughs> and like, fuck that. Cause like he just stabbed a lady in the head. Yeah. And then he really liked their set. He's also, I don't know if you noticed, he's the one that gets really mad when they start playing Nazi punks fuck off in the crowd originally. Yeah. So this guy's a, he's angry Nazi. Mm-hmm. Like all Nazis. <laughs> yeah, all Nazis. Punk shows growing up was like always scary for us when the older 80s bands would come out, like Black Flag and the Misfits would do like a reunion show or something. You knew the old skins were going to come out. And they'd always sneak in their fucking padlocks on chains. And they'd whip that shit around like nunchucks in the mosh pit. You remember that? Yes, that was the fucked up shit of actually seeing, you know, it went. Some shows, it's like the band stops playing. It's like, you see someone fall down, you pick them up. It could be a hardcore show, and they'd be like that. But no, we had plenty of shows where people went in the pit and beat the fuck out of people. We actually played a Nazi club by accident one time. We? I don't want to say the name, (laughs) but it was that place that was a tattoo shop on half of it and a venue on the other. Two of the people that ran shit had swastikas tattooed on their fucking faces, Josh. Maybe they were reformed. Place has been going for a long time, though, so we're safe. <laughs> so now with the other band cleared out, we've got the band and some girl, Amber, we don't know that yet, and the body all in there held at gunpoint Gabe, by this dude, Big Justin. And uh, Gabe comes back and he tells Justin to give the band the gun. And he's talking through the door. And he's like, no. He's like, you can keep the bullets. <laughs> right. or he's like, or I'm keeping the bullets. And uh Darcy's at the door too. And he's telling him it's all going to be cool and that the cops are on their way. Now I'm underselling that. He is like so calm and so on his game. He is also mad about the shit in the hallway because of the fire code. He says that, that as they walk to the door. Is it right then or is it after this? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. But yes, he does. Because first you're like, they have a call back to this. Like, get this gear out of here. This is a fire exit. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Sir Patrick Stewart. A.K.A. Jean-Luc Picard, A.K.A. Professor X, leader of the Virginian neo-Nazis. I know, right? And he's mad about the fucking gig bags in the hallway. <laughs> so Tiger loses his shit and jumps Justin in the midst of this conversation. And uh, Reese, he's a drummer. Um, <laughs> he gets Justin in an arm bar. And, uh, he's a badass. Meanwhile, we cut. This is one of those where there's is some odd cuts back and forth between what's going on inside and what's going on outside because there's like two stories being told that rarely intertwine. Um, we see uh, Darcy back with Clark asking if the dogs have been fed today and uh, starts they're talking about cleanup and going through the van. It's like, oh, oh, no, they're going to 86 these motherfuckers and 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 move on about their business. Well, right. They find the bag. They find Pat's bag with the funnel and the tube. And he's like, oh, this is perfect. I yeah. can work with this. Exactly. This brings me back. How does Jeremy Sonia come up with all this shit? Apparently he was in a band that needed to steal gas to make it through a tour. We've all been there. Cause I understand that like he, he was in the punk scene back in the day and he understands how the skins would come in and, and this and that. But like, he's really thought about if you need to kill people, make them disappear. You know oh, yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I mix them up. Is it snatch or lock, stock, and two smoking barrels that taught us you don't need dogs? Pigs. Pigs will eat everything, even the bones. Snatch. <laughs> okay. You like ducks? <laughs> Anyways. So while Darcy's getting everybody together on the cleanup plan, he finds Daniel in a running car. And he goes over to him and he's like, you know, 
question him about it. He's like, oh, just crank it up to make sure it runs, you know, type bullshit thing is what right. Daniel tells him. Because Gabe says he was supposed to be watching the door, yeah. but he needed it off. Uh-huh. So he pulls him into the mix to help out as well. So while everybody's freaking out back in the green room, Pat's like asking Amber, you know, I'm going to search, I'm going to search your friend. Is that okay? See if there's anything we can use. And um, he finds a note that says Fleischwolf and uh, gets told, well, and Sam says, well, you know, it's German for flesh, you know, like a flesh salad. So uh, meat wolf. And we'll come back to that later. (laughs) And uh, they have uh, Justin turn out his pockets and get a box cutter out of that deal. And then the power goes out. And, uh, I love this part. Yeah. So you got two main things going on. Tiger sees light from under the floor, but while everybody's freaking out, Amber lights a cigarette and hands it to Justin and tells him, to put it in his mouth. And, uh, whoever has the gun at this point, cause they do this whole thing about passing around the gun that none of them wants it. Cause they don't know. They've never shot a gun. They don't know what to do. It's like the cherry does something you don't like. Pull the trigger. Right. Reese is the only one that's like comfortable doing any of this. Yeah. Yeah. The rest of them are freaking out. I don't even know if they explain it. They don't have to. Like he knows, like, I, I want to say there's like a mixed martial arts comment made somewhere when he does the arm bar. Right. Like there's, there's something explained. Like I think somebody asked like, well, what happened? What would normally happen in a match? And it's like, either he would tap out or I'd break his arm. Right. Right. So y- you understand that he's done some sort of fighting. So yeah. he knows that. And when they're arguing over who will take the gun, he's like, I'll take the gun. You, you we just got to do something with him. Because he's the only one that can hold Big Justin and the only one with the balls to man the weapon. And it's just really neat. They get him the chair. They empty the pockets. But, like, I, I want to say it's the first time you hear Imogen Poot speak in the film. Yes. Yeah. And, I remember and right. I would have never thought of that. Oh, no. That was, like, all hell's breaking loose and somebody's going to fire up a cigarette. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> yeah. If Cherry does something you don't like, fucking shoot it. I mean, I don't know. That scene was just awesome to me. So the power comes back on and Darcy clears out the club, blaming, you know, we've had a main breaker go down, right. blah, 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 come back tomorrow, uh, free drinks, some shit. And the, remember, it's not a party. It's a movement. Right. <laughs> you could only have Patrick Stewart say the shit. I know, right? And it's like, I wouldn't believe anyone right. else. <laughs> and uh, honestly, though, this is one of the best cover-up stories in the history of film. Like, I feel like somebody witnessed something. Oh, no shit. One time, right? Yeah. Like, the, the all of it. The, the dogs, oh, the yes. paying the money, the true believers, the circuit breaker. So uh, Darcy has gave give a cow catcher what looks to be drugs and send them on their way. And we continue to see the van being prepped for something. But uh, Darcy's bitching because uh, they don't have the keys. So somebody in the band must have the keys. No keys. So Darcy comes back to the door of the green room and he says they can go. They just have to give up the gun. And he lays out what he would tell the cops as an alternative, because there's this argument back and forth, because Pat's the one doing all the talking. He's like, can we just have one of you talk? And Pat's like, okay, me. I'm like, no, you need to let us go. And he's like, you know, you're in there with an unregistered firearm. He's like, well, can we trade it for a registered firearm? Right, <laughs> so right. Shit. But Darcy lays out how he could present it to the cops. For all I know, I, I come to my place of business, and there is an out-of-town band locked in a room with an unregistered firearm. Maybe there's a hostage, too. So what do I do? Am I within my rights to intervene? Should I kick down the door and start shooting? Or can we just remove the guns from the equation? So with that said, they decide to give up the gun. <laughs> this is fucked up. This is so fucked up. So... They've had the uh, the door barricade or the couch, and they move the couch, and there's like this vent. So Amber's looking through the vent, and they crack open the door just enough for uh, Pat to start getting his arm out. And uh, Amber's looking, and she can see Darcy's feet. 
And as the door starts to turn, Amber can see over just a little bit more and she sees more feet and a machete. And she immediately says, they're killing us. It's not just the machete. She sees the boots with the red laces. She doesn't say close the door, anything. She just says, they're killing us. <laughs> and Pat starts fucking screaming. Tiger's stabbing through the crack in the door with a piece of ceiling grid from right. there, trying to find a way to escape earlier. And just Anton Yelchin fucking freaking out through this part and everybody's screaming. It is just fucking insane. And uh, Reese goes ahead and breaks fucking Justin's arm. All this is going on. He's like, fuck it. <laughs> it's all going downhill. Let's just do it. And uh, they get the door closed. Pat's arm is hacked the fuck up and it's all practical. Um, as far as the effects goes, right. that is, I was watching an interview where, where somebody says like, you need to just walk around like this, like dangling his wrist. Like you need to get used to what that's like. And, that's how he did it. Right. And it's not wrist shit, man, but because it's oh, on the back of the wrist. It's so but bad. It's still- the, the best part, which is also the worst part of the scene, is a lot of movies would cut to in the hallway to let you know what's happening. Yeah, they don't. They don't. You only see it from the green room. <laughs> and he's just screaming. And you're like, what's happening? Oh, are they are they pulling his fingers? Are you going to do a little toot here? What's going on? <laughs> and then he fucking pulls that mangled, useless arm in. And he realizes it's fucking game over. So Reese goes ahead and chokes out Justin. And uh, once he's out, I think Amber asks him, it's like, how do you, how do you know when they're, they're definitely out? And that's when Justin comes back too. <laughs> he chokes him out a second time. And uh, Amber fucking picks up the box cutter and just quietly goes up to him and just fucking slits him open from fucking his Belly all the way up to his chest. Going to sternum, man. Another practical shot with digital touch-up. And like you brought up in Murder Party, in everything I watch with this man, he's like, practical, practical, practical. We need to touch some shit up with a little bit of CGI, we will, but I want it all done practical. So now the new plan is to break through the floor where they saw the light, because they they don't want to go back out the door. They want to keep it barricaded. And they get down there and they find it's a bunker with a dope lab and no exit. So Pat then tries to inspire the group with a paintball story. Now, the paintball story is going to come up again later, <laughs> and I have some behind the scenes about that, but we'll get into that then. But Reese cuts him off because um, it's time to bolt. It's like they want to kill us. We now know that. Let's go while we think we can. I think the plan even says we're not all going to make it out, but maybe somebody will. Yeah. Right? Like they just it, fuck it. Like they're coming to terms with this. And it's I'm, I'm going to go into this for a minute because we talked about this in the other movie. All this, we're laughing and having fun with it because of how crazy it is. I didn't it laugh is at all. No, I mean, but talking about it, we are. Okay. But watching this, it's 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 how a group of real people would react in a very real situation. It's no over-the-top kung fu shit like you, know, like you talked about. These people are fucking scared and don't know what to do and don't have a plan. So as the door opens and the group heads out... They start saying they're real Desert Island bands. And I think Sam is the one that, that kicks it off. And I don't remember what she says because it's something, it's like Prince or something. Right, right. Because <laughs> she had already said a band. Yeah. Right. And she like says a real one now. Yeah. And and Tiger's like, mine's still Misfits. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, and even Amber joins in on it. And because uh, she's like, uh, Slayer. Right, right. And Madonna. <laughs> or I may have them out of order. Pat still has nothing. I'm saving that for the end. So they make it to the front door of the club, but Clark comes in with a dog and very quickly, that's the end of Tiger. Tiger gets taken out by a pit bull. But what, while this is going on, we see what he sees and that's a shotgun under the bar. Very briefly. Ooh, I've seen this movie like three times. I never caught that. (laughs) So Reese jumps out a window and like 
he's it's a sh- it's a shallow window and like his torso is hitting the ground his legs aren't even out of the window yet before he's violently being stabbed the fuck to death yeah because you think he got away until that happens yeah i don't know if we said it but somewhere in there darcy said i need this many men only red laces yeah and we're starting to figure out that we have all the guys that are willing to kill people here yeah and right now it's knives only knives only and don't hit the bone because you can cover that up with a dog bite. Exactly. Um, and the, uh, Clark was very specific on, like, no stags, no, you know, like he was only willing to give up a certain kind of dog because he's got his livelihood here. Yeah, because he's talking about how much it would cost and everything. It's like, and Darcy's know, like, I, this is my fucking livelihood. <laughs> Fuck you, I'm your boss. Exactly. I'm the head Nazi. <laughs> so Reese is uppercase fucked. Um Back inside, the dog that was fucking up Tiger is now after Amber on stage, but through happenstance, she ends up running off the dog with feedback from a fucking floor monitor. Um, so the three we've got left fall back to the room, and that being Amber, Pat, and Sam. Yeah, we still, ha- still have a Sam at this point. <laughs> <laughs> now, somehow, when they were out there, I guess Pat ended up with a set list, and guess what one of the songs is? Fleischwolf. And Amber says it means meat grinder. It was supposed to be their signal. I like that we still don't know the full thing about this. So back outside, um, Darcy sends in Daniel and Jonathan to finish up because the dogs won't go back in due to the feedback because he tells Clark, send in more dogs. He's like, you do something about that feedback and I will. And uh, it is amazing the amount of pushback Clark can give Darcy I know. compared to everyone else. But he's also the money handler of yeah, the club. So it, that, that is number two. It lets you know that there's something he holds over Darcy. Or at least like just demands the respect second in charge yeah so they go in they quickly nix the feedback and they break into the green room as soon as they break in sam gets them with fire extinguisher (laughs) because that that was her weapon of choice which i didn't realize is like a callback to a murder party oh yeah and uh until you were talking about it because i forgot that from the movie but uh Daniel sees Emily's body and he doesn't care about the fucking attack. His, what he's supposed to be doing or anything. He wants to know what the fuck happened. And Amber's like, you really want to talk about this with him in here to the Jonathan guy. And, uh, she spills the beans that Emily was going to be leaving and meat grinder was their cue. And that's when it actually gets mentioned. And meanwhile, we cut back to Darcy back to the black car that Daniel was in earlier. And he opens up the trunk and sees that it's packed full of stuff. And he picks up a picture and says, ah, the lovebirds. The important thing to catch here, though, is the fucking bat. So Daniel tells Jonathan that he should leave. So Jonathan bolts, and we've now got just Daniel. Daniel's now inside with the rest of them. He's now a member of the Ain't Right. <laughs> he plays synth and uh, washboard. Ooh, it's a nice touch. <laughs> they, uh, they go to make an escape, and he's like, fucking, no, we're getting out of here. And uh, he's telling them where they're going to go. Like, you, we get out of here, you get to this road, and yada, yada, yada. And they're walking past the bars. He's saying is all that. And they're like, well, well, uh, I think somebody says, like, how do you know we're going to get out of here? And he goes, I know something they don't. And just as he reaches under the bar, he gets fucking face shot off. Right. <laughs> he really does like to shoot faces off. He does. Um, there, There is a good scene in the parking lot, though where they figure out that Daniel hasn't came back out yet. And Darcy looks at the Gabe and he goes, what are we forgetting? He does say that to him. Yeah. And you're like, what could they be forgetting? And bam, the yep. face off. Like it just, it just all builds and builds and builds until somebody's jaw disappears. 
just because they didn't fucking take Alexander's Jolin murder party. That's his move, man. He's a fucking vindictive motherfucker. So Sam manages to get the shooter with the fire extinguisher. And no, I'm not saying she bashes her, his face in with it. She sprays him with it. Right, that's her right. Move. And Pat hacks dude in the fucking neck with the machete because uh, that's what Daniel had before he went reaching under the bar was the machete. So they head out the front door and immediately encounter gunfire and a fucking dog. Because at right. this point, it's they, they got to take care of it. So guns are now allowed. And um, the dog gets Sam. Uh, but Amber and Pat manage to fall back to the room again, the green room. And Darcy's psyched because now he's got keys. And because <laughs> it was Sam that had him the whole time. He tells the crew to get uh, get back to their cleanup work. And uh, back in the room, we see Amber asked to hear the rest of the paintball pep talk. And the story is that his buddy Rick goes full jackass against these Iraqi vets that had been whooping their asses in paintball. Yeah, Rick, he's like, those Marines just kicked their ass. And she's like, great pep talk. Now, the story of Rick is a real story. This happened to Jeremy. Okay. And uh, the I forget the guy's last name, but the last, the Rick whatever, this really happened. Rick whoever was like, fuck it, and just ripped off his shit and went balls out and took them all out. Meanwhile, Darcy gives Gabe his laces. And he makes a comment about there being a bad batch of dope going around. So the crew takes off, leaving uh, Jonathan, a dog, Gabe, and one helper guy behind. So they go in. The dudes hear feedback, and the dog takes off. They get into the room. Pat jumps down the hole. And through quick conversation between Jonathan and the helper dude, we find out that they've only got three shots. And at this point... They've shaved Pat's head and he has war paint on, right? Yeah, yeah. And him, I think, him, him and Amber both. Yeah. Well, not shaved, but they both, <laughs> exactly. have, the, they both have the Sharpie paint on. <laughs> but Jonathan heads down the hole and in the background, we see Amber coming out from inside the fucking couch. It's so badass. She's got box cutter in hand and she's fine with fucking using it. We <laughs> right. already know this. I do think I want to I want to point this out. I do think it's odd that they thought shaving Pat's head was a good look for this current scenario. Yeah, because yeah. he now looks like one of the Nazis, right? He does. So Jonathan gets cold feet and starts hollering up to the other dude, and is heading back for the hole just in time to see fucking Amber come up from behind him and slit his fucking throat. The real monster of this film. <laughs> There's a big back and forth between Jonathan trying to go after Pat and getting cold feet and Amber calling and like she uses um, fucking the first the dude's legs to try to right. get him to shoot. and He won't fucking shoot. But there's a whole bunch of back and forth and they get him to run out of ammo. Um, and she even ends up using Emily's body. And that's I think that's the last shot. Right. Because um, he's he, got the he, shotgun. Right. He's not factoring her body into the body count to use his dummies. Right. Yep. And so after all the back and forth. He ends up jumping Pat. Yeah, he jumps Pat. And Amber just calmly with the other dude's pistol walks up behind him, makes sure that it's loaded, puts the fucking magazine back in, cocks it, and just... And it's two quick shots, one through right. the neck and one through the head. It's fucked up. It's not how you normally see this shit done. I love how he does that. You're expecting a shot to the head, not one to the neck. and it, It's very visceral. <laughs> I got to get you a word of the day calendar. <laughs> now, Gabe doesn't hear all this because he's busy pressure washing behind the fucking bar. He can't hear them because they're too poor and he has his AirPods in and he's fucking rocking out with that pressure washer. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? did not have AirPods back then. I just want to point that out. <laughs> so as they climb out, they find Gabe just standing there in the door <laughs> and he just starts taking the stuff off. And he's like, I want to go to jail. Like, 
that's going to be a whole hell of a lot better than than sticking with this path in life, especially given current events. <laughs> he also doesn't want a, a box cutter to the stomach. There's that too. Man, she's scary. So they make their way out and they're headed towards the house up the road, but through the woods, not up the road. Right. Meanwhile, doggy. There's, there's a lot of intercut of the dog walking. Okay. He goes on his own <laughs> fucking journey, like Milo and Otis. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He goes back to his original owner. Fucking, they take some pictures. They go and have some cheeseburgers and then he comes back to Portland. But they reach a point where they hear gunshots, if I remember right, and they all stop. And uh, like, what's going on? And he's like, you don't want to know. And they go ahead and send Gabe on to the orchard because there'll be people there and he can call the cops. So now split, they continue on and they find the van and they get the drop on Clark and some fucking Nazi, Nazi asshole. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they get the drop on them. And they start leading them more towards the house. And you start quickly seeing how the scene's being set up that the van was there and out of gas because he even says the other guys like leave it running it'll run down the gas you know hearkening back to the beginning of the movie right. too and uh, we're back outside and you know it's an interesting way that all comes back around but they see Darcy in the stage scene of they were trespassing and stealing gas beware of the dog because earlier he's like do you have a no trespassing sign passing he's like I have a beware of dog sign he's like that's even better I, I want to say Pat says something like I wouldn't do that with the rag Right? Oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, the rag's there to make a seal. I wouldn't do it that way. Yeah. And all his delivery through the whole movie is like, he's so timid. Like, even when it's not in scary parts earlier in the film, he's just scared of the world. <laughs> right, <laughs> kind, right, kind right. Of guy, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> so Amber just randomly shoots Clark. He <laughs> speaks up to say something, and she just shoots his ass. And... Uh, we get a great exchange between her and Pat. So we're doing that. Why else would we walk up here? I don't know when I was gonna ruin the crime scene. Oh, I thought we'd leave a new one. There's another thing here where, where Pat's talking to Darcy and he's, he's like, you were so scary last night. But it's, it's the whole thing of playing off between now that we're, he, he never saw him. That's, right. That's, that's the thing. You were just the voice on the other side of the door. And now face to face. Didn't know he looked like a stupid Star Trek guy, right? <laughs> You're really hating on Star Trek I over here. I fucking hate Star Trek. I watched the shit out of Last Generation. That was it. Oh. No, Next Generation. That's what it was. I, I knew what, what the meant. fuck is Last Generation? Anyways, moving on. <laughs> so Darcy, like, all of a sudden is instantly, like, torn down. Because all he does is turn to walk away. Like, he's, he's got nothing left. Like. I think he was just trying to pull the gun real quick without being. He was hoping he, that it, they wouldn't shoot him in the back. And exactly, get the gun out in time, right? Exactly. But he's he's still he doesn't speak is what I'm getting at. There's like you feel his character is different now, like like weaker in some way. I don't know. But uh, immediately they shoot the sidekick and then shoot the bejesus out of Darcy, and most importantly the one shot in the head and like the the blood squirts out and like fucking it's fucking crazy. And Gabe makes it to the orchard. It's like, I, I, I need police. <laughs> and uh, we see the band Cowcatcher all dead from the, well, mostly dead from the bad dope and the one lead singer dude trying to eat cereal in the process of fucking dying. I want to point something out here. So when they were at Tad's, Tad said, you're going to have to drive almost all the way to Portland. And it's now the next morning. Well, after we see Cowcatcher, we see, we see Tad. Still vacuuming. <laughs> I thought that was funny as shit because I was like, that motherfucker's still vacuuming. 
I don't He's know. Procrastinated, waited till the next day, that last may, minute. That may be it. And we see the dog make it to the scene and go up to Clark and lay down because that's his buddy. That's his owner. Right. And that's like, that's sad too. Like this, this dog's going to lay here and die next to his piece of shit owner for fucking treating him the way that he has. I just like he, the dog walks up the trail and they see him and they pull their guns up and they start firing yeah, and they're like empty. Crazy and it's like click, empty. click, click, click. <laughs> yes. And he just fucking moseys on by to go die next to Clark. It's. A fucking beautiful ending. So Pat says he knows what his Desert Island band is. And Amber says, tell somebody who gives a shit. (laughs) And uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival starts playing. And it's like, oh, okay, so that's Pat's band. Well, watching some interviews with Jeremy, Jeremy said the secret is there's two. Okay. And that Pat's character has always had two. And one was Creedence, and that was known. And the other one that him and Anton to this day are the only ones who know it. Because he would whisper it in his ear on set, like as to motivate him or something. And I don't know if this is just an inside joke between the two of them that they say in interviews, but it was like, supposedly that's what it is. When we get to the end of the movie, you could say one or two, one being this, two being the one I've always whispered to you, which I don't know. We'll never know because he's part of the 27 (sighs) Club, unfortunately. This is true. And I don't know that uh, too many songs about paintball, so I don't know if it was supposed to be a paintball song, but. Best movie he's done so far for me. But better than Blue Ruin. Uh, I honestly, I think Blue Ruin's a better made film, but I enjoy Green Room more. And I will watch Green Room over and over again. Actually, I'll watch them both over and over again. <laughs> I don't know which one's about Desert Island movie. But uh, <laughs> Blue Ruin is like a very fucking artistically well-made film. Yeah. And Green Room is a awesome punk horror. Oh, yeah. Right, right? It's, good. it's got everything. Except it for it boobs. really does. There's no boobs. There is no boobs. Um, all the actors in the movie just fucking played their role right. Nothing in the movie was unbelievable. No, this was, <laughs> unfortunately, we've been around some people, some people in this movie. It's a similar character, knowingly. I mean, everybody in the movie is apparently based off a similar character, which is scary. <laughs> and, I think uh, mainly just the band was based off of people that he knew. Well, he said and skins. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Shows. yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like, like they weren't his friends, but he knew of skins at the club, right? Yeah. And uh, I don't like nothing was over the top action wise. Nope. And it it told a story, and it it got the point across. And it just don't play of, shows in Portland. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, if you hear Foss run. Yeah, Foss is a very bad word to hear. But I mean, like, going from his ensemble movie, and then he got to write and direct his own thing just to kind of get started. And then he got to write and direct his own studio film. Yep. And and we don't see any signs of a sophomore slump. And then we dive into his most recent film on Netflix, Hold the Dark, in 2019. So this, is, is this the senior slump? Is that what we call this? It's a slump. <laughs> Honestly, no, no, as a film, I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just the source material is a little weak. Yeah, this one's, it, it's not for me. I can't, it's not bad. Well, we'll save it for the end. This was based on the novel by William Giraldi. The screenplay was actually written by Macon Blair. We've got Jeffrey Wright as uh, Russell Core. He's been in a bunch of shit, most notably from what I saw, The Hunger Games. He is also going to be the new Commissioner Gordon in the Batman movies. No shit. I can see it. Yeah. Um, Alexander Skarsgård as Vernon Sloan, who I only really know from True Blood. 
and watching interviews with him, he's fucking hilarious. <laughs> Riley Kyo? Is, is it you fucking, I think I spelled it right. Um, if I butchered that name, I'm sorry. Um, Asmador Sloan. And the only thing of note that I saw that she's been in was Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, she is in that. Um, this is the worst werewolf movie I've ever seen. That would be because it's not a werewolf movie or a horror film for that matter. <laughs> However, I do have an interesting werewolf story. Oh, yeah. This is months past, I feel like now. <laughs> but while I was on a vacation in October, the wife and I and the kids were driving through Alabama to get to Florida to see the in-laws. Beautiful full moon in the sky. And I'm driving through the asshole part of Alabama <laughs> that is like one lane with no lights, stop signs, cities, civilization whatsoever. I know that part. It's right in between Mississippi and Georgia. No. That's the whole state. That was my joke. Oh, <laughs> my geography's bad. And we're like an hour outside of the Florida line and a pack of wild animals that I think were coyotes dove out of the woods in front of the minivan. And I swerved to not hit any of them because of course I was speeding because I'm the only car <laughs> on the road at one o'clock in the morning, right? Everybody's asleep in the back seat, including my wife, so she can like keep it on the baby. And I swerved and I perfectly miss all of them. However, they were running from something <laughs> which dove out of the woods and I fucking slammed into it. Airbags deployed on me. Jesus Christ. I mean, it didn't knock me out, but like the fucking blast of it. I'm like, what just happened? You know? And I see the animal flipping through and I kept telling everybody it was a werewolf because it was a full moon. It's so big, but it had to have been like a 150 pound fucking German shepherd. That is insane. And, uh, we got out of the car after my wife woke up to, to see the damage and check on the animal and whatever it was chasing started coming out of the woods, growling. And I was like, get the fuck in the car. So my wife got in the car and somewhere during all that, the Honda version of OnStar or whatever called, Margie wakes up and said, what happened? And I didn't realize it had called the emergency service line. And I looked at her and I go, my fucking nuts hurt. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear a strange man's voice say, excuse me, sir. And it was because the lower airbag like fucking racked me when it exploded. Because like my legs were burned they, they and make, I was bleeding. They make airbags for your chunk now? No, no. It was for like your shins and your knees. Oh. No, but seriously, the airbag pops and the air has to go somewhere. Yeah. And honestly, I think I wrecked myself by like tensing up. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but we were in the middle of nowhere. And they're like, it'll take an hour to get help to you, sir. And I said, I'm an hour and 15 minutes from my destination. I'll just tuck the fucking airbags in a drive, <laughs> which I did. The unfortunate thing, though, is your seatbelt. They apparently design it to go slack. So you can't use it so that you'll have to call a tow truck. So I had to drive with no seatbelt and no airbags, and we had three deer dive in front of the car after that. Jesus Christ. It was fucking most nerve-wracking, terrifying drive ever. So did what you hit, like, run off? Oh, no, it was dead as fuck. I watched <laughs> it fly through the air like a Frisbee. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I hit it at, like, 65, 70, something like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it was fucking goner. I watched, I mean, it was laying stiff in the road, like, the whole time when the other things came out to eat it. <laughs> or my wife and I. Uh, werewolf. And, uh, yeah, but I mean, uh, the story got longer than I wanted, but we finally made it to my in-laws and like, we tell them what's happening and we get my, my kids in bed. My wife goes to bed. My brother-in-law's like, you need a beer. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're drinking a beer and then my fucking cell phone rings and it's like two 30 in the morning and it says ADT and they answer it <laughs> oh, and they're like, uh, someone's trying to open your back door and I had to dispatch the police. Oh, wow. It was actually three feet behind you that back door the, here yeah so did you see any evidence of a prowler 
Well, the, it's a French sliding door, and if you yank I it. I don't care what nationality it is. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> well, if you yank it, it makes the alarm go off. Uh, but it has a bar, so you can't actually slide it open. Wind. Actually, uh, that's the same day that the temperature dropped 40 degrees. Oh. From a cold front. Could have been wind. But anyways, werewolf dove in front of my car, and I hit it. And this is still not a werewolf movie, and uh, I'm not sure what it is. So the movie opens with a quote, Oh, untouchably after evil, but uttering truth. And that's from Gerard Manley Hopkins. From what I heard, Macon Blair read the book and thought it was so good that it was perfect for Jeremy to make the movie. So then he wrote the screenplay and gave it to him. So I want to know. Macon Blair needs to stick to acting. What did Jeremy do to Macon? <laughs> give him this this book and i hate to say that cause it's a really well-made movie but the source material to me is a little little lacking yeah it we're gonna go through it here just because we're covering his body of work and we needed a fourth movie um but it's not i mean it's not horror it does have psychological thriller definitely but we'll just go into it honestly it was the movie that could have came the closest to being a horror film it could have you could have, have they ever actually used the supernatural element which uh, you can't blame Macon and Jeremy for not using because the book didn't. Yeah. I mean, as far as I know, I mean, I did a little bit of digging of comparisons between the book and the continue. <laughs> I didn't fucking read it. It was me we're talking about. But we open in remote Alaska to a boy outside playing who sees a wolf. We cut to the mother, Medora Sloan, locking a door. I mean, like putting a padlock on a fucking door and then making tea, which making tea, tea kettle. Another reoccurring thing in his movie. <laughs> Just point that out. We also see a wooden wolf mask. Now, uh, through her narration of a letter to Russell Corr, we learn that the boy was taken by wolves. And with Russell's experience in killing a wolf, as mentioned in his book, he is her only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And she also tells him that her husband is away at war and he's going to need something to come home to. So come kill this wolf. I guess the dead body. Here's my biggest problem with the whole goddamn movie. I'm saying it now. How do they know which wolf it was? He's How's a wolf this? expert. He'll figure it out. The one with the shoelaces hanging out of its mouth? I mean, seriously. I'm assuming just hunt the pack that's in the area. Kill them all. The alpha is probably responsible. Yeah. I will say, at this point, she does not know her son is dead. He's just missing. She acts like she has hope. True. Just, and it's also the third child to go missing from a wolf attack. Yes. Yeah. So, um, upon arrival, she tells Core about the darkness. Do you have any idea what's outside those windows? How black it gets, how it gets in you. So she also says that her husband was to be notified. And uh, she gives him some better boots so they can go out for a walk so she can show him where the other children were taken. And by better boots, I mean, she's like, are those really the boots you got? And he's like, well, yes, ma'am. And she gives him Vernon's boots. While they're on the walk and she's showing him where the other children were taken, she explains meeting her husband. I didn't meet him anywhere. I knew him my whole life. I don't have a memory he isn't in. I'm going to go ahead and bring up real quick that uh, in the book, it goes into much more detail. She gave him much more detail and that there was actually an additional scene, one of several additional scenes shot that explained a lot more than the movie does. And uh, Jeremy decided that it was too spoon feeding. He wanted to give people a reason to rewatch. Right. And after watching it and then watching interviews and reading interviews, what he did makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, 
because it was really bashing you over the head with it. It seems it was bashing you over the head with it in the book. And that may have been the point in the book was to tell a fucked up story. And he saw an opportunity to withhold some stuff to make it a little bit more fun for the audience. So that night back at the house, Sloane is in the bathtub and talking to herself. Right. And uh, he's just trying to get some sleep. Yeah. Russell Coors asleep on the couch and this wakes him up. And uh, he just lays there and she gets up butt ass naked, puts on the wolf mask. Walks over to him, takes off the wolf mask, lays down in front of him on the couch, grabs his hand, and puts it on her throat and starts squeezing it. She does at least put the arm around her first without the throat. Yeah. And he looks a little, like, he's not just going along with it. Oh, no, no, no. He he, he looks like he's like, okay, she's a disturbed mother, and she just wants somebody to hold her. Yep. Right? And he tries to hold her, I feel like, fatherly, other than the fact that she's naked. Yeah. Right? And then it goes to the throat, and then he's like, huh? Yeah, yeah. My kind of woman. Um, Well, not the child-killing part. <laughs> so we cut to the warm, presumably somewhere in the Middle East where we need oil. Um, it's where we're always fighting. I know, right? And we see the soldier just mowing fuckers down from the roof of a Humvee. And uh guy even jumps out and says, damn, Sloan, you're a real meat eater. <laughs> it's a random-ass lie. That's what he says. Yeah, but the guy's like, this is douchebag O'Neill. Because he starts taking selfies with the dead bodies of the cars like he's the one that did it. Yep. What an asshole. So we're fully introduced and revealed Vernon Sloan. And he's in this town now, still in war, Libya, Syria, wherever the hell they are. And uh, not a knock at that place. I don't think it ever actually says it. It never pops up. Middle East. And uh, he sees one of his boys raping a local inside this fucking building. And uh, he puts a cigarette on the windowsill. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's so, like, just fucking nonchalant. Well, when I see this, and I shit you not, this is going to sound terrible. You know, back in our day, in the arcade, if you wanted to play something that somebody was on, you'd come and put your quarter or yeah. two. I got next. And I'm like, is he putting his cigarette there because he's got next? Because I don't know what's going on at this point. But no, he goes in, fucking takes out his knife, fucking yanks dude off of her, stabs the shit out of him right oh through the God. fucking armpit. Yeah. Throws him down, hands her the knife. And then leaves his fucking machine gun in the living room for her. And then goes back out and fucking gets a cigarette. And you can hear her going to town on the guy with the knife. I do want to point out, that is the fucking meat eater guy. Oh, oh the guy that called a meat eater? Yeah. Oh. That was douchebag O'Neill. So the guy's like fake super soldier taking the <laughs> selfie, right? Like, oh, I just killed all these fucking bad guys. And he rapes the locals. And he rapes the locals. And then the guy that actually killed the bad guys fucking shanks the shit out of him. So he gets a cigarette and he's walking away and then he gets shot in the fucking neck and it's not mortal fatal or anything like that. And you don't know at first though. It's pretty, it's graphic. Oh yeah. It's just pouring out and he's like trying to get his sidearm out, but we quickly see that he's going to get to go home. And honestly, from the start of the rape scene to him getting shot in the neck is the most Jeremy Sonier oh, the yeah. entire fucking movie is. Well, that and oh, after the coroner's office. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about the same scene, then. That's one of the most badass action scenes of all time. Oh, no, that's good, too. That's fucked up. I wonder how that is in the book. Anyways. I'll read it and let you know. I meant to actually read the book before the podcast, but I got busy. I thought about it. No, you didn't. I really did. (laughs) Then I went back to what I was doing. So back in Alaska, Kor sets out to find the wolf. But on his way out of town, he's stopped by an old woman. Come to get a wolf's tooth? You're going the wrong way. That girl knows evil. She'll tell you. So he continues on, and he ends up finding a pack of wolves eating a pup. 
Now I want to point out here, this is another one of those times with, you know, practical, practical. Right. It's real wolves. There is a stunt wolf puppet that was made that I don't think the shot that it was in actually made it into the movie, if I remember right. But the pup that those wolves are eating, they made that. Yeah. That's. And they said that it was really hard to get the wolves to do what they wanted them to do. That's fucked up, man. Sprinkle some crack on there. We just saw Josh's O face, everybody. (laughs) So as he's watching this, he ends up falling down the hill and the wolves approach. He fell down very Dwight style. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He was like bumbling full. Yeah. And uh, they approach and he, he gets, gets his gun up and he can shoot them, but there's like a quick little like Mexican standoff type thing. And the wolves kind of retreat and he's like, okay, well I'll let you go. He's there to kill the wolves. He doesn't take the shot. Don't understand that. Well, actually somewhere in the movie, he states that when he saw the wolves eating their young, he knows that they only do that under signs like desperation. And when they're starving, so he kind of puts two and two together that if they're eating their own pup, then they obviously hadn't eaten the Sloan child. Yeah, because it, yeah, when they get into the savaging and stuff. Okay. I retract that. <laughs> so back at the house, well, well Core goes back to the house and the door is gone. And he goes to the now unlocked door that we saw her locking at the beginning of the movie. And he heads downstairs and discovers Bailey's body. In case anybody's wondering who Bailey is, Bailey's the kid that, that, right. that was taken away by wolves. Now he freaks the fuck out. The boy! It's no more. It's no more. So we're now introduced to Chief Donald Merriam, who asks Core to stick around and comments on what the villagers said. Medora Sloan is possessed by a wolf demon. It is called a turna. She slips her own skin, her blood is cursed, and it keeps going. That's what you get when you talk to the villagers. Kor tells him about the wolf pup and explains savaging. When I encountered the wolves, they were in the act of devouring one of their own. A pup. It's not uncommon at all. When resources are scarce or there are unnatural stresses, some of the young may be killed to preserve the group. Behavioral term is savaging. But we cut to a flashback of Vernon and Bailey next to a dead deer talking about how it feels to kill something. He even asks him, he's like, you know, haven't you killed someone? He's like, yeah, and then I had to. And, you know, if you have to protect something, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. So it, it, it's humanizing them for what's fixing to happen, I guess. So Vernon's now made it back close to home. And we're introduced to Cheon, which we may have seen him earlier. I'm not sure. But uh, he's the one who takes Vernon to the coroner. Chion is also one of the parents whose children was taken by the wolves. Yes. Is that mentioned yet or is it just reiterated when the cop's talking to him? I know it's mentioned with the cop, but I think when she says something about our child was the third one to be taken, mm-hmm. I think she says she something names. about the friend Chion. Okay. Um, so he's there um, and he meets Kor and IDs his boy. And as they all go to leave, Vernon makes it a point to shake the wolf man's hand, as he calls him. And uh, Core and the chief drive off. And one of the cops hands Vernon some notes that are the leads that they have so far on where Medora has gone. And Vernon quickly shoots both cops in the face. It is that out of nowhere. I literally rewound it the first time I watched <laughs> it. Cause I was like, what the fuck did I just miss? Because he just murders the shit out of the cops. Yep. And uh, he picks up the rest of the file. And uh, it's pretty obvious that Cheon's like 110% complicit in this. Yes. He doesn't say anything. He's just like, 
going through tasks. Like now we have to go do this. And they load up, they get the boy's body and they take it for a barrel. And Chion even helps with the barrel. And they make this coffin and he's marking on it in blood. Mm-hmm. And right then when I'm watching the movie, I'm like, oh, this is going to be like some right. pumpkin head shit, man. We need a vengeance demon's going to come next. That doesn't happen. I'm assuming these are all like Inuit rituals and shit like that. Yeah. Because, I mean, everything in this movie parallels with something. Like the wolves were savaging their child. Yeah. Medora savaged Bailey. You know, like shit like oh, that. Yeah. And I do want to bring up that uh, one of the key things, another key thing left out of the movie that's in the book when Russell Core is first talking to Medora about when Bailey first went missing, that in the book she says that when Vernon first left for war, the first day he was gone, all she wanted to do was throw the child in a fire. Ooh. Like this, it broke her as soon as he left, but it was left out. It's um, like she was uh, struggling and like needed something, right? That's why she killed the baby. Yep. So, some way to get him to come back. So Chion has a truck ready for Vernon to take and uh, says that he's going to buy him some time. Man, when Chion says he's going to buy you some time, he's fucking <laughs> serious. Like when your bro says he's got your back, <laughs> you hope he's not crazy like Chion, but you hope he at least has the initiative of Chion to have your back, right? Yes. So as Vernon loads up, we see an old picture of a young boy and a young girl, and they're both blonde and sitting on water's edge. He goes on and he goes to see the the old witch, and she talks about the other times that the wolves came, like the flu, white people, anything bad. It was, you know, represented by the wolf. And uh, if you're starting to put pieces together here, which is really weird because they're white just Medora and yeah, yeah. art. So it's why they, I don't know. Well, the doctor guy later kind of like specifies that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. A Nordic woman, just had, like yourself. Had to get the wolf out of you. So we cut back to the hotel where uh, Russell Corr saying, and uh, he's laying in bed and he rolls over and he has this hallucination of Medora laying there in bed with him. And she says, there's something wrong with the sky. Meanwhile, Chief Donald finds the bodies, the cops' bodies, the coroner, and the right. then that there's a missing body and everything that went down there. So while this is going on, Core goes back to the old woman, the old witch um, she, she gets referred to as, and that Vernon had went and talked to with her throat ripped out. So we didn't see it, but obviously Vernon fucked her up too. Right. So Chief Donald tries to talk to Chion. This is a crazy ass fucking scene you were talking about because <laughs> first he goes to the door and there's a long back and forth conversation about how, oh, you gave people a, a, the ability to shit inside their houses. Like when our kids went missing, you were of no help. Pretty soon we'll all be gone. Quit acting like you give a fuck. And uh, Chion ends up telling him, think about the phone call that his wife's going to get. This pregnant wife. Right? Yeah, 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 pregnant wife. And how nothing's going to stop that phone call. And he falls back and starts walking back to the rest of the cops. And he doesn't even make it back to the rest of the cops that are out front before Cheon starts fucking unloading with a mounted belt fed machine gun from upstairs. Which you see him like self mount, like in the act of all this, like he's wrapped and ready to go. And it is a total fucking bloodbath. I ain't going to go through the whole thing, but Russell Core gets under a fucking car while everyone else is getting shot. Um, there's like a rookie like crying and pissing yeah. and shit in his pants on a boulder. Yeah. Well, Chief Donald gets him over to the boulder and tells him to stay the fuck there. The bullets he, can't go through this rock. Yeah. So while he goes around back to discover the back door is booby trapped, 
the fucking kid sees another officer that shot screaming for help and goes running back towards him. And she on fucking lights him up sniper style, meaning not the kill shot, the fucking I'm going to wound you and try to draw out other shot. And when core comes out, he holds his fire, lets him drag him away. So there's already this weird respect sort of thing with the wolf man. Which I get with the Sloans. Yeah, but why why Cheon too? Because he shoots at him a little bit more at first. See, I thought he had a reload somewhere in there. When he first starts reloading, that's when Core runs up. But uh Chief Donald does cut the line on the booby trap, makes it upstairs, and blasts Cheon out the fucking window. So we cut to Vernon, who at this point has tracked Medora to a rented room. But he had just missed her. And uh, the innkeep tells her that she was going to see uh, the Indian hunter, John. So she takes him to the room and she apologizes for not having time to change the sheets yet. But he's all about that because he starts <laughs> sniffing the sheets. Now in the book. And you're waiting on him to wolf out at this point, right? Well, here's what's fucked up. In the book, it specifically mentions that she stained the sheets. And that he starts sniffing and licking the stain. Ooh. Yeah. How's that for visceral? <laughs> but it's very animalistic. That's that's the main point. So he goes to John, who calls him and Medora Nordic looking with the same hair and the same eyes. Almost like they're twins. Almost. Almost like they've known each other as long as they've been alive, right? They yeah. never actually met. Yeah, never met. Just always been there. He also says he remembers him and his dad, and at the time his dad brought him there looking for wolf oil. Must have been trying to get some of that wolf out. And uh, Vernon takes a wolf mask down off the wall, because this guy has masks on the wall. And we hear Vernon uh, shoot John. We don't actually see this one. And the innkeeper, in response, starts opening fire, and he makes his escape. So, it's a Jeremy Sonia movie. It's time to introduce Macon Blair. Because what would a Jeremy Sonnier movie be without making fucking Blair in it somewhere? And he was a screenplay writer this time. Yeah. I'm not going to hold it against him. I'm going to hold it against the source material. I have not seen his movie that he wrote and directed starring Elijah Wood, but I hear it's fucking awesome. Elijah Wood's really starting to get into more R kind of stuff. Yes. Well, you know, he did the Maniac remake. I still haven't fucking watched that. I haven't either, but he's about to do a bunch of horror stuff. Like he started a whole horror production company. Yep. That's pretty fucking cool. So he crawls into Macon Blair's basement and uh, he finds him, gets him stitched up. Meanwhile, Core has dinner with the chief and uh, through conversation, he tells him about the hot spring cave. Yeah, I kind of glossed over that. Okay. So early in the movie, Medora tells Core about this hot spring, like it's that far that way. And it's a really good place to wash yourself clean or something like that, yeah. right? And uh, he ends up going there when he's out tracking the wolves. He's telling Chief Donald about this, like, what information I have, that's probably where she, or my best guess is that's where she went. And uh, if I got in the area, I could find it again. We then have a flashback to the couple in the cave where the hot spring is. Oh my God, this is where they've been fucking since they were kids. Because that's what's in the flashback. They're in there boning down. Ew. So as Vernon rests, Macon Blair calls the cops. I think he's got a name, but I don't, they never said it. Um... And he's like, yeah, I got him here. I really do. And Vernon hears the call and ends up stabbing him in the head with a screwdriver. 
I, I think remember so. right. Cause he's like, man, I'm on all these pills and they got me messed up. And yeah, you know, yeah. I'm just telling them I'm turning you in. I was going to tell you so you could get away. That way I get brownie points. <laughs> this was after the soup conversation, by the way. <laughs> what kind of soup? Like he's fucking like bleeding out. What kind of soup you got? Cause it just to kind of like show how far back they go. Yeah. And he's still stabbed in the head with a fucking screwdriver. Yep. Does he have the mask on? He has the mask on. This movie really touches on the supernatural shit. With the mask and letting your wolf out. Yeah. And like how they want to attack the wolf man and the savaging and like everything about it is just so fucking close to getting me going and it doesn't do it. Yep. Yep. So Core and the chief fly off to find the cave. So after landing, Vernon spots them and Chief Donald takes an arrow to the knee. Nope. Throat. I was thinking that maybe Jeremy was a Skyrim fan, but just it just didn't pay off. No, no. Um, so he's out of commission. So we're back to that phone call. Nothing, right. Nothing stopped that phone call. Um, it's kind of like the Ben, like, don't give a speech. Like, it was inevitable it happened. Yep. So Core makes his way to the cave. And uh, as he gets in there, he sees Medora. And Vernon comes in behind him, if I remember correctly. I think so. And shoots him in the shoulder with a fucking arrow. Doesn't and, kill him, though. No, on no. purpose. And uh, Vernon goes over to Medora and starts choking her until she takes his mask off. And then they start to bone down. <sighs> giggity gig. <laughs> no, they're siblings. There shouldn't be any giggating. <laughs> so when they get done, Vernon pulls the arrow out of core. And Medora says, Now you understand about the sky, don't you? Core crawls out into the snow and he's surrounded by wolves. And this is one of the many times, like when I think, I think when the Sloans leave, we see it's all of a sudden we cut to a shot of two wolves yes. running through the woods. That happens a few times in the movie. Like there's this representation of them. Not that they're turning into wolves, but. So Core's out there in the snow bleeding out and he gets surrounded by wolves. But the locals find him and they stitch him up. And by locals, when they were flying, they point out that they see who's out here this far. Well, they got a snow machine, blah, 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 blah. Well, these are the same people, the same Inuits. But with them is this old white woman. And she takes and clutches Kor's boots, which are actually Vernon's boots. Right. And walks out of the hut or whatever they're in. I don't think it's a straight up like house. I don't know what they're in. We don't really get to see. And uh, it's like, ah. She's the mom of the diddlers. I didn't catch that. I didn't catch it till I read about it. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so meanwhile, the couple being the Sloans, they retrieve the boy's body and just head off into the snow. No pumpkin head. No pumpkin head. No. And there's even a line earlier. It's like, hey, can you raise the dead? Well, yeah. no. Well, yeah, what good are you to my boy? Um, so Russell Corr awakens in the hospital with his daughter who had been mentioned earlier in the movie about how they were kind of estranged. Right. And when he got the letter, she was in Anchorage. Here's an excuse to get close to her. And he wanted to catch up with her. And Sloan did not think that Anchorage should count as Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. And if you watch them fucking wilderness shows, no, Anchorage should not count as Alaska, <laughs> man. There's some, man, have you watched there's, I, I don't know if it's on Netflix or what it's on, but there's like a cops that all, you know what I mean? The show cops, right? Yeah. But it's in Alaska. Uh-uh. Like there's this there's one episode where dude's coming up on a house gonna, and a moose comes running from around the corner <laughs> and he's fucking drops this moose. 
years. <laughs> like, imagine nothing against Australian people. These people are like, Australian, damn, Alaskan people, fuck Australian people. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But, but the show. Roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> it is, man. But it's like, like the worst trailer park <laughs> you've ever seen out in the middle of nowhere in the snow. Like, people fucking cooking meth and shooting each other. In the middle of nowhere, like trying to survive bear attack and shit. We watched like four episodes and then that was enough. But dude, you if you like cops and stuff like that, I'll try to find the name of it, man. So Cor awakens with his daughter by his side and she asks what happened and he says, I'll tell you. So he's going to tell the story. So was the whole point of this for him to write another book? Is that I think Medora actually said somewhere earlier in the movie, I just want you to tell our story. Okay. That like that, that was his purpose there. That she makes wanted the story told. Um the movie doesn't look bad. The acting is good. I mean, the movie looks good, the acting's good, the cinematography's good. All it of has that's some good. Fucking amazing scenes in it. It does. The underlying story, however, was not a plus <laughs> for me. <laughs> I mean, in the words of Jesse. I forget which movie you said that about. <laughs> I mean, I did like it more on the second watching. And I'm not, I'll never say it's a bad movie, but it is not, it is definitely my least favorite film of his. Yeah. And it's, and nothing is of his fault, I don't think. No, it, it's source material. And I just think that the source material doesn't really have, it's just a weak story. I mean, it, I think you could have told the same story. And like cross the line on the supernatural with the wolves in some way, whether it be a curse or, or something. And I think it would have fucking improved it so much for me. Yeah. Well, and I also, like I brought up earlier, um, I, I know from a little bit of research that there was the fucked up stuff, like the, the incest and all that stuff was went into in more detail in right. the book. So it makes me wonder if the fucked up stuff was in more detail in the book. And it's just more one of those fucked up stories that you get to the end and you're like, that was fucked up. I, I really wanted to to read the book before the episode and I didn't get time, but I did read a, a rather large comparison between the two and the incest and everything is like, it just flat out says it. Yeah. There's, there's no dicking around it. Um, I like what you did there. And things like that. And, and apparently it like brought up more wolf references and okay. brought them into more light. But even then, the source material never crossed the supernatural line. It just kind of like, eh, does the mask make them do it? Is there like a wolf curse? Are they descendants of wolves? Do they shape shift into wolves? Like it never actually says it, but it doesn't really push at it so much other than their weird similarities to wolves. Yeah. Which wolves do inbreed. Like animals do when they need yeah. to. They did do the savaging. Yeah. They did spare the wolf man. Yeah. He definitely has like alpha pack leadership oh, skills. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Even like his buddy. Like his buddy was falling as alpha. Yep. He was willing to die and shoot all those cops for his alpha. Who he hadn't seen it while he was going to war. So their parallels to wolves were insane. It's just like, I don't know, Macon read the book. He fucking liked the book. He wrote the screenplay. They made a good movie. It's just not for me necessarily. Yeah. Uh, same here. Just, just not my bag. Um, got some interesting fucked up shit in it. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, that's one of the best shootout scenes in the history of film to me. Yeah. And another one of those abrupt things in his movies when, when fucking Vernon shoots the cops outside the coroner's office, it's, it comes out of nowhere. Pretty much all the murders, even when he kills Macon Blair, it's just like, what the fuck's happening? When he, when he stabs this fucking, the soldier that's raping the, the local. Yeah. Like all of that. It's just like, what the fuck? Like Jeremy's still like on top. <laughs> 
on top of his game for that. I just don't know. I mean, the movie was pretty highly rated on Netflix and talked about a lot. So it was popular. So it, it definitely like helps his resume. It just necessarily was not for me. Well, this rounds out the three for me. It rounds out the three newer directors between him and Flanagan and Juan, which I'm going back a little bit farther with James yeah. Juan when we've talked about who who's the passing of the torch, so to speak, of what's going on. Um, I actually see parallels with him and Flanagan. Other than like, I feel like Flanagan once he like hit that stride, he's like, okay, I'm gonna top of my game and I'm gonna fucking take this torch and go with it. And I feel like Jeremy is still really like the camera shyness, right? He's, like he's just he's like, still an up and comer. Yeah, but he might stay an up and comer. Maybe I don't. He talk in his interviews. He talks about loving horror, being a gore hound, but he likes playing with the psychological of it on screen rather than just you know like dead alive. It's so absurd that it's comical. But I I think I'd rather see him. And I don't even know if he'd be interested in this. I'd like to see him do something more akin to having a supernatural touch. We talk about these supernatural directors that we'd like to see him do a slasher. I don't think I'd like to see him do a slasher. I'd like to see how he would approach the supernatural because his out of place, random people die and like you get slapped in the face with stuff you really didn't see coming. I would love to have those kind of moments in a supernatural movie and it not be jump scares. Those moments I could see him pulling off that I don't know if supernatural is necessarily his vibe. No. With the way he does like psychological thrillers and stuff like that, like I haven't seen it yet, but Eli Roth did the Death Wish movie. I oh, can see. Fuck. Okay. The four, not the three. <laughs> I could have seen him like redoing that movie with Bruce Willis. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. He's just like, I hate to say up and coming, but he does only have four movies yeah. under his belt. And one of them was kind of like him fucking around friends, right? The first one. So I would like to see where he goes because I fucking love all of his work. I like his collaborations with Macon Blair, but Macon Blair is making his own movies now too. I find it interesting that like Blue Ruin was to showcase Macon Blair's acting chops and then his next two movies, Macon Blair had bit parts. Yeah. I think that's kind of strange. You'd think he would have done like the Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell thing, but he didn't. True. And I don't know. We start getting into studio money at that point too. That he may have been told. You know, hey, it's not a, like I hate coming back to this, but, you know, like Kevin Smith, like the studios tell him, Kevin, it's not about making a movie with your friends. It's about making art right. know, that we make money off of. <laughs> and uh, the, I'm spitballing here. I mean, that, that could have been part of it. Like, you know, you're not it's ours now. Macon is a fantastic actor, but like he's not necessarily like leading man for every movie like for Blue Ruin. Yes. hundred ten percent. But he kind of is that side character guy. I feel like in some things, like oh, he yeah. popped up in Swamp Thing recently. I didn't actually watch all of it. Oh, that was the wife's jam. Well, he's in a few episodes of Swamp Thing, and okay. it's like a fitting role. But like, I mean, he'd already became a screenplay writer and director at that point. Like, yeah. At that point, I feel like he was a Swamp Thing fan and called James Wan or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what those two each do. Yeah, in the future, and what they do together once again. Yeah. But we've gone through another series of genre, franchise, and director. Yes, we have. And it was really different to do. Uh, it wasn't really straight up horror. It was exploitation, right? Yep. Like it was, it was a different step for us. Still a fun ride for the most part. Not the wolves. <laughs> well, that's it for our Jeremy Sonier series. We might have had some issues along the way, but at least we were able to get it out. 
Yeah, we did. Since this concludes our category franchise director rotation, we're going to have to hop right back into a category. So you're going to have to tune in on the next episode when we cover Christmas horror movies for the holidays. (laughs) Die Hard. No, no, wait, that's not a horror movie. Ooh, but that'd be fun to cover. (laughs) But anyways, as usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email at sbyspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you would follow us on our Twitter and Instagram at sbyspodcast. This might actually motivate us to use them more. See you all in the next one. Thanks for listening. We're not keeping you. You're just staying.